The reading is taken from Jeremiah 29, verse 1, and then verse 4 to 9. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is what the Lord God, the the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. So my father was born in Malaysia, and my father's father was born in Sri Lanka. Uh, My mother was born in India, but her father was born in Ireland. Uh, So I'm about as multicultural as I think I could get. And um, my my mother, um, so she was part of a mixed race marriage, an Irishman and uh, a local Indian woman. Uh, He used to work on the plantation. Uh, He was a crack shot with a rifle. And whenever there was a man-eating tiger around, he would be called in to uh, exterminate him. And there, there's some wonderful, scary pictures of my mum, aged two, on the carcass of a dead man-eating tiger that uh, live uh, in my lounge. And um, my father, my grandfather, sorry, he died in the Second World War in El Alamein, fighting um, uh, for the Allies. And um, he was given a military cross for his service. But his children... His mixed-race children um, were deemed unacceptable to the wider family. And so the three girls, my mum was the oldest, uh, were divided up and put into three different orphanages. And uh, because they were the wrong race, uh, they were called half-caste. And that was a horrible term in those days. It still is today. And um, my mother grew up a little while in the orphanage. And then her great-grandmother found out about the three girls, divided into three orphanages and brought them over to the UK one by one. And my mum felt she wanted to kind of give back to British society, so she became, uh, she, she was training to become a nurse. And um, they were a bit surprised when they met my mum, because people thought that people from India couldn't really speak English. And my mum spoke the Queen's English with the most wonderful accent. Uh, they were surprised that my mum know, knew how to use a knife and a fork, because obviously people from India live in the jungle, and uh, they were surprised by that. Uh, people used to tell my mum to go black home, which is a really clever way of telling someone to be repatriated uh, by also insulting the colour of their skin. Um, it was a difficult time for my mum. Uh, she felt very isolated. She was just 16 years old. And this was the response she was getting in non-multicultural Britain back in the day. But my mum decided to fight a resistance movement. Uh, it was a one-woman resistance movement, and it involved... Uh, a large vat of rice and a large vat of curry that she'd cook up on a Friday night and she'd welcome anyone that didn't feel they fit in to come round to her house for a meal. She wanted her little household, however small it was, to be an outpost of hope that there's another way to live. And my mum, I think, taught me um, what hope looks like in difficult circumstances. Uh, I want to talk to you about hope in difficult circumstances. 
how we're all called to be a people of hope. Uh, whatever party we're from, uh, however our party is in the ascendancy or the descendancy, we've got a role to play uh, if we're trying to be followers of God. And the passage that we have read out for us helps us with that. This is quite a difficult letter that was being sent um, to the Jewish nation when they had been taken from their country as exiles and refugees and forced to resettle in Babylon. And Babylon was a wicked, evil empire and that the Jews were not very happy to be there at all. And they were told by many people, don't worry, this is just a time out. You're the people of God. There's no way that you're going to be here for any time at all. It's like the sin bin in the time of, of an ice hockey game. You're just going to be here temporarily. But Jeremiah the prophet has some other news for them. He says, actually, you're going to be here for a very long time. You need to build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so they too may have sons and daughters. This isn't a sin bin. They're not just going to be here for a short time. They're going to be here for generations. And you can imagine how hard that would have been to hear. And Jeremiah tells them, well, you know, other prophets will tell you better things. Uh, they'll tell you you're going home soon, but they are not from God. Sometimes the people that want to tell you good news are not necessarily sent from God. Sometimes they're just people there to tickle your ears. But Jeremiah says that you have been sent here because of the way that you've lived. But I still have a mission for you. There's something I want you to do. Even though you don't want to be here, even though the culture is against you, even though you're struggling, you still have a job to do. This is what the nation of Israel was supposed to do in captivity in Babylon. It says this, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. God says to the people of uh, Israel that they are supposed to bless their captors. The people that have ripped them away from their family and their friends and their houses and their security. I want you to bless them. Jesus says something similar in the New Testament. He says, love your enemies. Well, here the people of Israel were called to bless Babylon. I meet a lot of Christians who are upset at the moment. They say, oh, you know, the culture's turning against us. It's harder to be a Christian. Christians are being marginalised. Christians are being persecuted. I struggle when people say Christians are being persecuted in the United Kingdom because I've met people from Pakistan. And I know people that live in South Sudan. And I've met people that have escaped from North Korea. So when, when people say persecution, I think we should reserve it for those kinds of countries. But people sometimes look at our culture and they say, it's not as Christian as it used to be. It's, it's, a, it's a lost narrative. It's a glass half empty narrative. And I guess if anyone could have had that attitude, it might have been the nation of Israel, ripped from their homes and taken to a foreign land. I don't think we live in bad times at all. I think there are huge opportunities uh, for the people of God to live well, to be a people of hope uh, in a time when our country might be facing um, some uncertainty and insecurity. But if God can call even exiles and refugees to be a blessing to the nation that they're sent, I think God can call people living in England who are not facing persecution to be a blessing to the place that they're sent. And the difference, I think, that will make that possible is if we become a people of hope. I think Israel were able to bless Babylon because they knew they weren't there by accident. 
I think they had a hope that God was actually in control, that he knew what he was doing, even if it was difficult for them to see at that moment. They had a hope that was beyond their circumstances. I don't know about you, but sometimes it's hard to wake up and switch on the Today program as the first thing I do in the day. Because it always starts my day off with something terrible that's happened in the world, or some political fight, or some disaster. Uh, or if it's flicking through the Guardian headlines, or the Telegraph, or whatever your paper of choice is. Um, if, if the newspaper sets the tone for our days, we're up and down, or mostly down, because the newspapers tend to catastrophize things. We need to live beyond our circumstances with a vision of hope that is independent of the circumstances that we face. That's what God called the nation of Israel to do. I want to offer you some ways in which hope can help us live differently in these times. And I don't mean political hope, I mean a hope that the God who rules the universe actually is in charge and he can help us live in the day by day. And I hope as we talk about these things, they might help you see how your life can be a beacon of hope. How your parliamentary office or the colleagues that you work with can be a beacon of hope. How your home can be a people of hope and a place of hope. The first thing I want to say is that I think fear divides us, but hope unites us. When you're fearful, when you're scared, you tend to retreat into a little bubble with people that you like, and you don't find it easy to work across barriers. I think a lot of the racism that people encounter in our country is, is driven by fear and insecurity. I think that's why my mum got shouted at in the street. They just didn't know what to do with her. She was unsettling the culture, and therefore they retreated. Fear divides, but hope unites. I've seen it when people come together for the common good. Uh, Christians in Politics is an APPG. Uh, Home for Good, the charity I helped found, started an APPG on adoption issue. And it was great to have politicians from all the sides of the house come together and say, do you know what? Making sure that children are safe in permanent loving families is not a party political issue. It's a humanitarian issue. It unites all of us, and therefore we can work together. I think there are more issues like that than we might think. We were delighted that the APPG was able to help us um, make a case that after someone has been adopted, they need support. And so we were really excited. Uh, two weeks ago, the government said that they were going to carry on the adoption support fund. Now, the APPG was led by a Labour MP, but a Conservative government has decided to keep the Adoption Support Fund. Some things are bigger than party politics, aren't they? I'd love to see even more collaboration. If we're driven by hope, it allows us to find common ground across the sides of the house. I want to say this, fear retreats, but hope forges on. Uh, I've just come back from a conference in Thailand. I arrived at 6.30 this morning. So if I'm a little bit slow, I apologise. I think I'm allowed to fall asleep in my sermon, uh, even if you're not. Uh, the conference was gathering 500 people from 70 different nations, and they all had one goal uh, in mind, and that was to help 8 million children who are currently living in orphanages to be able to go home to their living families. 
I know that might sound contradictory. What, what, what do you mean, 8 million children in orphanages? Surely, children that live in orphanages are orphans, and therefore they don't have families to go back to. Do you remember my story of my mum? My mum had a mother. She didn't need to be in an orphanage. The reason she was in an orphanage is because she was socially unacceptable, because she was the wrong race. There are lots of children in the, in the world that are in orphanages because they're the wrong gender. I was speaking to a lady from India. That she was one of eight siblings. She had seven brothers. All were kept by her family. But because she was a girl, she was given away to the orphanage. Why? Because they were nervous that girls would be more hassled because when they grow up, uh, they will need a dowry. And therefore that would be too expensive. You think, you're making a decision about a girl's future when she's just a few months old, surrendering her to an orphanage. Children with disabilities are hugely overrepresented in orphanages around the world because they're often told that the orphanage can care for you better than your family can. Some of the ways in which children can go home is for people to speak up on behalf of girls, of people from the wrong race and people with disabilities and help to persuade a culture that everybody is made in the image of God and therefore everybody is valuable. Now people tell me, Chris, it's impossible for 8 million children to go home to families, or if they don't have families, to be fostered or adopted locally. They say it's going to be too difficult, there's too many hassles, it's too hard. But that's a fear mentality. Imagine that uh, Lord Shaftesbury was told it was impossible to sort out all the chimney sweep boys that were up the chimneys, or to sort out the conditions in prisons. Imagine someone had told William Wilberforce that it was impossible uh, to end the transatlantic slave trade because it was just worth too much to our economy. Fear retreats, but hope forges on. Some of the great social reformers of our time are driven by faith. Think of Martin Luther King. How did he fight against the racism of his day? He was driven by a hope of a dream that sustained him, however hard it got. Fear retreats, but hope forges on. And lastly, I want to say, fear shuts down, but hope opens up. I think we're in a time when people are nervous um, to kind of give themselves to things. You know, to be a person of conviction. To think you can actually make a difference in the world. And so we just kind of shut down. We hibernate. We cocoon ourselves. We retreat into a safe space. Um, they talk about cocooning as something that people do seasonally. That, so as the weather gets bad, you don't bother going out in the evening. Uh, you just turn the heating up, uh, put on uh, warm clothes and stick on Netflix and just kind of retreat from the world, hoping it will all go away. Fear retreats, but hope opens up. I think there are ways that we can open ourselves up to the world around us. There was once a guy that turned up at my, my mother's house. He didn't know it was curry night, but uh, he just turned up at our house. And he knocked on the door, and I was living at home then, and uh, my mother was the first person to get uh, to the door. She opened it up and there was a huge man filling up the door frame. And she said, how can I help you? And he said, well, this is a strange story, but uh, I've just arrived into England at Gatwick Airport. And I was talking to the girl next to me on the flight. And uh, at the end of the, um, the flight, we got off and um, we went through customs and I had something to declare. My undying love for the girl I just sat next to on the plane. The problem was, this was 
the last millennium, before there was mobile phones and Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and Snapchat, um, he didn't even have her phone number or her address. All he knew was that she lived in Brighton. So he was going door to door, one door at a time, until he could find her. Now, I don't know about you, that would have been the end of the conversation for me. Nice to meet you, good night, see you again. Never. But my mum, she was a woman of hope. So she welcomed this guy in, asked him to tell her a little bit more about his life, and made him a nice hot mug of Indian tea. And after he'd told her a little bit more about his life, she said, well, you're going to need somewhere to stay. So she made up the couch bed in our lounge and um, made sure he was safe for the night. This was great news for him, but bad news for me, because my bedroom was opposite the lounge. And I was about 15 years old at this time, a little bit scared, new to faith, hadn't worked out that being a Christian meant that you would welcome strangers. And so I took all the bits of furniture that I could move and I built a barricade so that this guy couldn't come and get me. And I, I sat there under the covers with my little Swiss army knife for protection, just in case this German man decided to attack us all. Anyway, we woke up the next morning, brilliant, I'm alive, that's a win. And uh, all our house was intact and there was a German man still snoring in our lounge. And uh, my mum made him a nice breakfast, sent him on his way. And we never saw him again. But I like to believe there is a German-English couple somewhere in the world that when they tell their story of how they got together, they remember about the hospitality of a little Indian woman who believed in love. Friends, fear shuts down, but hope opens up. What would it mean for you, your family, your culture, your nation, your party, whatever area of influence you have, what would it mean to be the most hospitable that we could be? We are still globally in the middle of a global refugee crisis. There are still children and young people that need somewhere safe to live. We're in the middle of a project in Bristol trying to find 10 new spaces for unaccompanied asylum-seeking children. And Bristol says we want to be a city of hope. We want to forge a different way. We want to show that we will be the most welcoming city that we can be. I love it when people of hope get together because fear divides, but hope unites. Fear retreats, but hope forges on. And fear shuts down, but hope opens up. Thanks so much for listening.